Well, well, good morning, everybody. Delight to see you this morning, and uh, welcome to our service this morning. Um, this one's the next one in our faith, uh, Facing Faithwood series. My name's John Lockley, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, if you're watching in from home this morning, a big welcome to those from home, and uh, I hope you feel like you're part of the place, even though you're in a slightly different physical space at the moment. Um, Part of our setting here is this faith, uh, Facing Faithwood series, looking at how faith works in action in our lives. And uh, Scripture tells us in Hebrews 11 that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And from James' letter, in James 20, we also can uh, get a feel for what faith is right from the beginning when it says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And he follows up with faith without deeds is useless. And I'm just going to stop right now. I don't know if you um, just, as I was wandering around out there earlier, there's, a, there's a, a person out in our foyer area at the moment who I think God is on a journey with. I don't know if you've been down past the bathrooms. As a family, can we simply pray for that person right now? Okay, let's just stop and do that. Father, I'm challenged by the thought that there, but by the grace of God, go I. And I recognize that I and, and many of my friends are simply, we're saved by grace. Nothing that I've done, nothing that's in my strength, but, but by your grace, Lord, we come before you this morning and we come to worship. And if we were all to sit and give our stories, there'd be much that we would, that would challenge us and challenge you. Well, it wouldn't challenge you. So I just pray for this person this morning, Lord. You're on a journey with them, obviously. You've brought them here. So I pray by your spirit you would work in their life and would you would you help us to be faithful in whatever our role is we just pray this in your name jesus amen hey thanks for that it's good so actually ties in here faith the word faith is a verb it's a doing word it's about it's not just about a position that we have in our head it's actually about putting into practice what we what we believe by taking action such an importance on understanding of the role of faith, of living as a Christian. We're following through a series on uh, faith in Hebrews 11, along with a range of activities that we're doing together over the next uh, weeks. As a church, we're on a journey, discerning together what God's saying to us in our neighborhoods, <laughs> even right here. And we're looking to join Jesus in his mission. I can't stress that enough. We're looking to join Jesus in his mission that's occurring right here, right now, right around us. Last week, we looked at the role of faith and action in our lives through the lens of finding courage to take action. We looked at this through the story of Gideon, Mr. Bean. I don't know about you, but that got in my head. Um, Gideon, the least likely of characters to lead a rebellion against the marauding army of the Midianites. Yet he did it, not on his own strength and power and skill, but by having faith in action with God. 
This week we're going to look at the role of faith in action when we face the future, and especially when we face uncertainty and fear in our future. Well, wanting to know and have certainty about the future is a very human thing. I don't know about you, but I love, I love routine. I, I love knowing what my day's going to be. I love knowing what my week's going to be. You know, Monday is this, and Tuesday is this, and Wednesday is this, and, and I know all of that. And woe betide if things upset that. But then I chose to be a pastor, and, and my days are just, I, it's wonderful. Contrast this with facing the unknown, when life becomes anything but routine and predictable. When major crossroads occur in life, when unexpected news derails the plans that we have, a diagnosis of cancer, the sudden death of a loved one, an accident that changes our mobility or independence, at times like this we can really, well I really struggle. Uh, about, about four weeks ago I went to the doc and did my once year update, said hello to my friend the doctor and he said by the way that thing on your back is, is I think a basal cell carcinoma and I'm going to book you in for a, an operation in about three weeks time. My normally sharp brain has been porridge until I had the little operation done and it's coming right. Because you just, and many of us know this, you, you, you get this, the cancer word and your brain goes off into all sorts of worries and all sorts of things, either for us or for someone else. So I get it, I get the message this morning. When we face that uncertain part of our future, how do we do that and how do we do that in God? Well, it's perhaps these times when we face uncertainty in life, challenges and fears, that we have actually the opportunity to draw near to God. Perhaps it's at these times that we have the opportunity to really see uh, what our relationship with God is really like. Well, Scripture tells us this uh, in Hebrews 11.6, Without faith, it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, that he exists and he rewards those that earnestly seek him. Well, humanity has for centuries tried to deal with the uncertainty and challenge of the future by, uh, by themselves, out, outside of a relationship with God. We read about ancient rulers like the pharaohs of Egypt or, or the rulers of the Babylonian Empire who went to extraordinary lengths to try and figure out what was going on. They had they had um, seers and they had people who could look into the future and tell them what was going on. And it was all because of political advantage and advantage in their economy and being able to overrun other people. Well, we may form a wry smile as we think about people in the ancient world or, or today even the eastern world still calling on oracles to help them predict what's going to happen in the future. Our educated, western, scientific view of the world precludes this sort of soothsaying. But then how many of us checked the weather forecast yesterday to know whether we should hang the washing out this morning before we came to church? All right. Or how many of us are listening to, watching podcasts or reading commentary from economists as what's happening at the moment and what's going to happen with my house mortgage price? Actually, in our swept up 21st century, that that piece of us as humanity that wants to control and know the future is still there. 
I'm not sure that humanity's changed its stripes. We just have different upgraded tools by which we do this. Well, this morning we're going to look at how we as Christians can live faithfully facing our uncertain world and the specific challenges, the worries and the fears that we see before us on our own particular journeys as we live in this contemporary society. So to look into how we can faithfully face this, we're going to look at the next part of Hebrews chapter 11. We move on from verse 32 from from last week uh, to here. And what more shall I say? I I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, and that's where we went last week, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies." As we look into Hebrews 11, we acknowledge that it's a book written to a Jewish community undergoing great trial, and and it's jam-packed full of stories of encouragement. It's written to an in-crowd that knew all of the stories, and the author was reminding them of them and drawing out what it means to live faithful lives while they waited for the kingdom of God to be restored around them. The reason for writing is just as relevant today as it was for them as we wait for Jesus' return in a kingdom where we sit under a different rule. The writer in this passage really does write confidently. He certainly names the heroes of faith by their first names. And in the case of today's faith hero, not even by name. He simply refers to him by an encounter that they had. The character is Daniel, who survived being imprisoned with a den of lions, who shut the mouths of lions. That's the reference we pick up on today. The story of Daniel begins with the invasion of Israel and the destruction of the temple and the enslavement of the Jewish people by the Babylonian Empire around 600 BC. Well, the gritty details of the story are to be found in in the book of Two Kings, and if if you're into those sort of gritty stories, go back and read that. Um, It's in chapter 25. But long story short, most of the people were taken off to Babylon as slaves, leaving a small cohort to work the land in the Jewish homeland. And the temple was destroyed and the treasure taken away. Daniel, our main character this morning, was one of those taken off to Babylon. In Daniel uh, 1, it records this. And we'll just read the scripture together. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered uh, Asphenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those that were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, 
Belfashar. <laughs> to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, uh, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why, sh why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine and they, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding and of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand the visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, Daniel chapter 1 gives us a, a wonderful overview, the, the big picture of the world that Daniel lived. He grew up in and he matured in. It bookends around 50 years uh, of time from when Daniel arrived in Babylon until uh, the beginning of King Cyrus's reign, so somewhere between 600 and 550 BC. Throughout this time, Daniel lived under the rule and reign of a foreign empire that tried constantly to assimilate him into his way of life, its way of thinking, its morality, and its own sense of justice. Do you sometimes feel like that, living in contemporary New Zealand society as a Christian? This was an ancient world fixated on national conquest and nation building, horrific violence, suffering, pain, and sorrow for those that did not have power or privilege. Go back to two kings, you can find all that. In the midst of the scene, though, the story of Daniel shows us uh, some of the important Christian life hacks for surviving and thriving in a world that wants to subvert and assimilate you into its way of seeing and doing life. Now, the book of Daniel has so much in it, we could spend a whole series looking at what God is saying to us in there. And for those that know the book well, you're probably going to be disappointed that I don't cover everything, or, or more likely, I don't cover your favorite bit. It's a book of power and intrigue and deception, of political scheming, of spiritual and miraculous activity, of betrayal, of overcoming, of justice, and of so much more. It would be a fabulous movie. It's a, it's a great read. 
So this is my disclaimer. If you miss your favorite bit this morning or, or, or a bit that God has spoken strongly to you through, just come see me later or send me an email. I, I'd, I'd love to engage with you, but we can't do it this morning. But there are some things that we can learn about living faithfully and facing uncertain and an uncertain future and, uh, and how we can apply that to our lives. So the first thing is this. How do we remain faithful when facing an uncertain future? Well, Daniel's carried off as a young man, probably just an adolescent boy by, by the invading armies of the Babylonians. He's separated from his family and placed in a state boarding school. Out of all the thousands of people captured and moved to Babylon, he and his three mates are among those that are singled out as candidates for a university education in the New World. So he's there around three, for their three years of study. One assumes that the rest of his friends, the, the ones that weren't so, um, it tells us, handsome or quick on the uptake, were sent to other places, pro- probably labor camps, placed as slaves to support the economy of the country. In ancient times, it, it wasn't uncommon for an invading king to take on wards. That was the word they used. I take on a ward, and they became someone... Uh, who they took into their conquered kingdom. They were chosen from amongst the ruling class and taken to live with the king's extended family so that they could be educated or perhaps indoctrinated, is a better word, into the value set of the new kingdom. They lived in and alongside the ruling family and enjoyed all the privileges of that life and so became, and here's the word, assimilated into the new country's way of life, leaving behind the thinking, the values, the allegiances of their past world. They learn to bend the knee to the new ruler. Psychologists of today have studied this phenomenon have labeled it Stockholm Syndrome, the condition where a hostage develops a psychological bond with their captors during captivity. So as these four young men were there, they faced challenges. And the first challenge that Daniel and his friends met is the challenge of identity. So how do we remain faithful as we meet the future? We think about our identity. Remember who you are. What's in a name? What does it matter what you call something? Isn't a name just a placeholder for identification? Well, actually, no. Names are important and they convey meaning and intent. When our parents named us, they often hark back into family lines and honor the, and remember those that have gone before us and at the same time link our names with thoughts and hopes for the future. In my case, I know my parents named me John, creating a link to remembering my father's brother, who was Norman John. And at the same time, they acknowledged the bit of a miracle of my birth. John, of course, means the Lord has been gracious. On their arrival in Babylon, Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are immediately renamed with Babylonian names. Their original Hebrew names are derived from the names of the God of Israel, Yahweh. Daniel, whose name means El, uh, means El is my judge. And he's now renamed Belshazzar. Belth, why am I sticking with that word? Belshazzar. A name that honors the Babylonian deity Marduk, or, or he was known as Bel. So we get Belshazzar. Hananiah, which means the Lord has been gracious, and, and at this point I'm glad I just got John, 
Mishael means who is what God is, and Azariah means the Lord is helped. Famously, these three are renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these names again refer to and honor Babylonian deities. From here on in, on a daily basis, Daniel and his friends are called by these new names, and their identities are challenged every day of their lives. With every greeting, they are called to forget their Jewish past and heritage and to become just like all of those around them. Who do you say you are? How do you describe yourself when you meet a total stranger for the first time? How do you introduce yourself? How do you present your whakapapa, as it were? What information from your past do you disclose and in what order? So I can introduce myself as John, John Lockley, Pastor John Lockley, then no one talks to me, um, Dr. John Lockley, or if I'm in Nepal, they refer to me as Reverend Pastor Dr. John Lockley. <laughs> or is the introduction you choose something more meaningful? A couple of weeks ago, Verity and I were away in our motorhome. We went to Jones Landing out at, out at Lake um, Arapuni. I got up in the morning and walked, and this young man was sitting there, uh, and, and he uh, beckons over to me. G'day. I said, hello, how are you? And he says, oh, do you want to smoke? I said, oh, no, mate, I don't smoke. He said, don't know. I said, I could have said, hi, I'm Pastor Dr. John Lockley. And my brother-in-law is chief constable in the other motorhome, because he's a policeman. I said, Thank, thanks, man, but I'm a Christian. And my high, how I get to my day, is actually through God and, and, and my relationship. And we had just a teeny interchange, and later he disclosed that his car wouldn't go, and he needed oil and all that, and so I lent him some of the oil from my diesel my diesel truck, uh, to go in his car. But anyway, it got him on the road, right? So how do you choose? What's your whakapapa? How do you choose to introduce yourself? And, and how, are you, how do we act faithfully in the small things? How do we remind ourselves and those around us every day of who we are in Christ, of our identity in Christ? Being faithful in the small things makes a big difference. The second challenge they face is that of fitting in. Daniel and his three friends are young. The text indicates that they're adolescent, and if you've ever worked with adolescents, or you're a parent, or a teacher, you may be aware of this little thing called peer pressure. <clears throat> At this adolescent age, there's a huge pull not to stand out, to be one of the crowd, and to fit in, to have the right clothes, to be seen in the right crowd. And the writer of Daniel takes time However, to tell us that Daniel and his friends were, and it uses the word resolved in, in the text that we have in the NIV. They were resolved, and it means absolutely steadfast in their determination, in their decision actually not to fit in. Not to just go with the flow, not to eat the royal food and wine, even though it would have been great food. And have you ever seen an adolescent boy eat? Have you ever fed one? All right. But they choose not to eat all that good food. As the king, king's captive servants in their state boarding school, as it were, Daniel and his three friends are expected to eat what the rest of the court's eating. The trouble here is that this is non-kosher food. It's, it's 
food that is, uh, and kosher means food that's fit and proper for Jews to eat. And the Jews have very strict dietary rules. You can go to Leviticus and find out all about that. The trouble here was that they didn't know where the food had come from and how it had been cooked, so they, weren't, they, they couldn't be confident that it was fit and proper for them as Jews to eat. So Daniel's answer is to go vegan. Now, I'm not arguing here that the Bible teaches we should all be vegetarians, but in Daniel's situation, this was the best alternative. What's more important, I think, than what they actually ate was their determination to stay true to their faith and to put that faith into daily action. And in this case, it was through their choice of food. By rejecting the Babylonian diet, they effectively uphold God's command in Leviticus 20, where it says, You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Here the word holy means really does mean set apart. And by refusing to capitulate and to eat the diet that was offered as normal by the Babylonians, they set themselves apart from those around them and show that they are different. The difference they choose to take is something that God shows is important to him. Daniel and his friends choose to obey God's calling at the cost of endangering their lives. They reject the food offered by the captives and and through the grace of God, the jailer takes a risk on them. He allows them to go vegan, and in all ways, they are better off. The significance of this is that they set up a system where every day they remind themselves that, in fact, they are different from all those around them. They put their faith into action, and the action they choose to do is significant as it sets them apart and reminds them of who they truly are. In the big picture, it's more a spiritual act of obedience than anything to do with the food that they chose. For many Christians, we recognize this as we pause before a meal and give thanks or, or say grace. It may seem such a trite and nothing sort of thing to do, but that happens if you've lost connection of who you really are. The common meal can be seen as a form of worship, a communion of people together celebrating God's provision and a way of remembering every day just who we are as we ourselves live in a world waiting for the return of our rightful king. Acting faithfully in the small things does make a difference. Even when we are obedient in the small stuff God acts, Daniel took a chance and arranged the situation where he and his friends had access to a diet that was acceptable according to their faith, and God acted. Verse 17 tells us this, that to, to those, uh, these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. This wisdom from God sets them up to meet the challenges of the next part of their future, which was mastery of the Babylonian curriculum. Look, every Christian parent I know spends time thinking about what school to send their kids to. They end up buying houses in suburbs to do with what school they want their kids to go to. They, they mortgage themselves. They change their world to do this. It's not a small thing. For some, the answer is to send their children to a Christian school, and for others, they figure it's okay to send them to the nearest state school. We all, however, wonder 
And yes, worry about the influence of the state curriculum on the way our kids think and the influence it will have on them. And then there's the dilemma of if one of the kids wants to go to university, the very heart of secular thinking in our land. And then what do you do with someone with several degrees and diplomas who spent the best part of their life not only learning in the tertiary system, but taught there as well? Daniel's placed in the state education system for three years, the equivalent of a bachelor's degree. According to commentators here, they would have studied subjects such as scribal arts, lexography, the study of natural phenomena, medicine, religious studies, economics, business, law, and government. The objective, of course, from the Babylonian perspective was twofold. Firstly, to educate Daniel and his friends so that they would be useful in the kingdom, understanding the way things were done around here, but also educate them in the way we think around here. The plan was to enculturate them into, uh, into being, thinking and acting as Babylonians. The hope was that their Babylonian education might affect the way they conceived the world, its meaningfulness, meaningfulness and the place of God, uh, of the God of Israel within it. But God perhaps had a different aim in allowing this. Daniel and his friends excelled at their studies, their secular studies, and when they graduated, they ended up in very influential positions in the government. Here, they were able to engage in what we might describe as reverse enculturation. God has placed them in a position where he could influence this whole country and bring an awareness of who he really was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In the big picture, it wasn't really all about Daniel and what he was going through. It was all about God and what he was planning. Daniel ended up in a position where he was able to influence society enacting what the prophet Michael summarized as, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Daniel was placed, allowed to be in a place of great influence for God. And in doing this, Daniel found the balance in knowing when to challenge, when to adapt, when to keep silent. Despite three years of constant state education, Daniel remains faithful to God. He continued with his resolve to the commandments of obeying the food laws and of remembering to care for his neighbor as himself. But there would have been another practice that would have been critical in staying faithful as well, and that's prayer. Uh, Prayer was practiced in Israel at the time that he was taken, and the the practice was to pray three times a day, at the third hour, 9 a.m., at the sixth hour, midday, and at the ninth hour, 3 p.m. Daniel and his friends kept this tradition, this discipline. And I'm sure it would have been an important part of reminding themselves every day of who they really were, and it helped them hold on to their identity in God. Well, the four friends go on learning and mastering the curriculum together, and at the same time, remain faithful to God in what they do. The solidarity Daniel shows with them bears fruit in the final scenes is not only are Daniel and his companions safe, but they also enjoy promotions within the government. They move from being captives whose every move is watched to being advisors and bureaucrats. Yet, 
in a land with limited rights and freedom. Here, the gifts God gives Daniel allow him to succeed in the Babylonian court as a skilled official and to bring about change in society. Well, the third thing we need to understand in faithfully facing an unknown future is to understand God and the world around you. Not just understand the world, but understand where God is in the world. Remember when we started, one of our beginning points was to acknowledge that without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. We need to not only believe that God exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him, we need to act in a way that shows we believe it. As Daniel and his companions struggled each day through their studies and indentured to the court of Babylon, not knowing what, what might become of them if they didn't pass, every student has this, has this uh, struggle, if they didn't pass, they didn't write the right things, they didn't please their tutors, where failure in their case might have meant death, and they only saw what was there in front of them. The picture of society that they were learning about every day But God had a bigger picture, a much bigger picture. The prophet Isaiah tells us that all this happened just as was predicted. In Isaiah 39, it says this, And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you will be taken away, and they will become slaves in the palace of the king of Babylon. Not random. (laughs) Not by chance. By God's design. In his bigger picture. In the midst of the turmoil and uncertainty and fear that Daniel must have been experiencing, not knowing what was going to happen next. And place yourself in that picture sometimes. Not knowing what was going to happen next. There was a big picture plan unfolding. And this plan was not random, not by chance, not even directed by the powerful rulers of the time. It was already planned and articulated by God in his confidence. With this view in mind and from our position of hindsight, we can see that Daniel really had nothing to worry about. But try telling that to Daniel at the time. Or in fact, try telling that to anyone that's going through a challenge where their future is uncertain and scary. What is clear, though, is that the favor shown to Daniel was drew drew to the mercy of God. It was not through Daniel's cleverness or his actions or anything that he did. And it wasn't to do with the benevolence of the king's servant. Every time something happened, it was because God had planned it and was working with uh, what Daniel and his friends offered. With what Daniel and his friends offered as they lived their life, acting out their faith. It's interesting to wonder, you know, if Daniel and his friends hadn't rejected the food that was offered to them, if they'd just as teenage boys gone, oh, so hungry, noshed on everything. What if they'd perhaps succumbed to the teachings of the, of the state education system and, and, and just forgot about their deep roots. Parents, grandparents, the role of, of teaching our young people before they get to the state education system is so important to give them their roots. 
If, they, if, they, if they'd thrown all that away, would their names be and their story be the ones we read about today? I'm, I'm convinced that we would read this story, the story of, of God at work in the Babylonian Empire, but perhaps, perhaps the names we read would be different. God works with what we offer. Right? Would God have found others that were willing to stand apart and approach the future faithfully, no matter what it looked like? I don't know. I, theologians can answer that. I'm, I'm, I'm a pure, mere pastor. The thought focuses me on my own faith, though. It, it, it galvanizes me. It focuses me on how I act, even in the little things. Because that's, that's what we read about. Little faith, little actions that simply reminded them day by day by day who they were in God and encouraged them and empowered them to act out their faith every day. And God took that and he used it. Daniel shows us that the same God who allowed Jehoiakim of Judah to be captured by Nebuchadnezzar is the same God who gave knowledge, wisdom and success to Daniel. So, so what does it all mean as we face the future with faith? Daniel believed it was possible to stay true to God's commands despite Babylon's tyranny. He, this gave him the courage to confront those in power time after time. The book of Daniel documents a number of encounters where Daniel and his friends' lives were in doubt as they face an uncertain future. And each time God miraculously intervenes turns up to champion those that have been living faithfully, even in the small things. Daniel interprets dreams that he hasn't even been told about. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah survive being thrown into a furnace. And right where our story began, Daniel survives being thrown into a pit of lions as God keeps them from devouring him. Oh, the stories are exciting and they're well worth reading for homework. Throughout his life, Daniel faced an uncertain and often scary future. He met this situation by finding ways to remain a person of faith while he adapted to the constraints of living under another's regime. He was willing to speak out for himself and his friends and confronted those that represented the tyranny around him. Sometimes his faith was quite quiet, sometimes confrontational. His wisdom lay in knowing which path to choose and the occasions when the occasions arose. And this too is the way we as Christians can face uncertain futures. Sometimes the victories people achieve come from working within the status quo. Sometimes they require defiance. All demand that hope dominate over despair. One's faith community can be a great source of strength when one faces individual, local or global challenges as we do. Like Daniel, we're continually being bombarded by the world around us who attempts to draw us into being just like all the rest. And like Daniel, we must walk tightrope between compromise and conviction. We must put our faith into practice in the way we act. The journey that we're on as we wait for Jesus' return is full of challenges to our faith. It's full of opportunities for us to respond faithfully to God's call in our lives and to show that we have not lost sight of God 
and who we are in him. There's no guarantee that the journey will be easy and that we won't ourselves end up surrounded by lions at times. This is Reuben's depiction of Daniel in the lion's den, uh, painted in around 1614, and it shows Daniel in fervent prayer. Yep, I would be too. <laughs> but remember, more than remember, understand that his survival had nothing to do with what he did at the time. It had everything to do with what he had done in the past, what he'd resolved to do, to act faithfully, even in the little things. He believed that God existed and that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. And he put this into practice. But this wasn't the only lion's den, as it were, that Daniel faced. As a successful leader and administrator, a person that held a job of civil society, he was open to scrutiny from those that worked around him. We are told that he excelled in his work and that the king was planning to promote him and that his colleagues became overcome with jealousy. So much that they plotted to trick the king into killing him. And and that's where the lions come in. As a Christian in the workplace, you too may find yourself surrounded by lions that want to devour you and bring you down. You stand out a bit too much? Just that wee bit too honest? You don't buy into the workplace jokes or take sides in the politics or join in the gossip. And that threatens people. The hope and the aim for us all is to navigate the tightrope between living in the world, aware of its cultures, the way people think and the way they act, and to remain faithful, living out our faith in confidence, showing that we are different, knowing when to act, when to speak, and and when not to. We do this because God has placed us, like Daniel, in a position where we can influence, where we can be on mission, sharing the message of hope in Jesus. And the big picture, it's, it's not actually about us. It's about what God is doing. His bigger plan. We're just given a part to play if we're willing. The goal, I think, is, is to be talked about no matter what the challenges are that face us in the same way that Daniel was. As his colleagues schemed and plotted, fueled by their jealousy, in chapter 6 we read this. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could not, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Wow! If only I could have that honestly carved in my headstone. Facing the future faithfully, acting faithfully, doesn't mean that you won't face troubles, that you won't face uncertainties, you won't face scary situations, but it does mean that you can face them in confidence in God. I love Reuben's picture of Daniel, confident in his faith in God, but for me, maybe this is a more contemporary motif. This says it all to me. No matter what comes our way, if we are faithful acting at our faith every day, reminding ourselves of who we are in Jesus 
and we hold firm to the calling he's placed in our lives, we can have confidence that he has a much bigger picture than we see. And he's faithful as we wait for his return. Let's pray. Father, I love the fact that you are always there. You have always been there. And in my journey, my own personal journey, or in our personal journeys, we, as humans, we see the, the, the peace around us and we don't necessarily see the big picture. May we have faith to act in you as we meet an uncertain future, as we meet the uncertainties of those things that come towards us. We hold on to you. Help us to be faithful in the small things which actually define who we are in you. And that's my prayer for each and every one here, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.